0: Hello there and welcome to the Storymakers Institute, conversations, analysis, and dispatches from the front lines of storymaking. A special hello to everyone from our Substack community. If you've been enjoying the show thus far, make a zero-cost contribution to the show by sending your story-loving mates our way. The StorymakersInstitute.substack.com is the website, and we're keen to hear your thoughts about the show too. Leave us a star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Award-winning foreign correspondent, documentary producer, investigative journalist, Drew Ambrose, is on the show today. Now, he goes where few dare to travel, producing often confronting stories about the world around us as senior producer and foreign correspondent for Al Jazeera. His stories are fascinating, exceptionally crafted, and as you'll hear in this conversation, Drew loves to shine light into even the darkest corners of the human experience. This is the Storymakers Institute with Joel Carnegie. Hello, hello. Just gonna turn myself up. Tell me about the moment when all of a sudden you realise you're onto something. Is there like a kind of moment where you go, aha, this is great, and then realise you're onto something?
1: I think the aha moment comes when you actually hear the answers from interviewees, like the most unlikely of characters just coming up and saying something profound or wonderful. I don't I, I don't very, really get excited by the ideas. I get more excited when someone says something that you're like, that's going to put tingles on the back of someone's neck, or that's going to change the way that they see Uh, an issue and I think um, one that springs to mind as a very quick example is actually two is you know hearing from super young inmates or people who've been through the criminal justice system and when they make observations that perhaps you wouldn't expect society to make of them like you know indigenous kids in custody or um, Maori kids whose parents are in jail and they've got these very very sharp observations of what's gone wrong in their life it's that moment where you go wow this is going to be a great documentary. How do you create an environment where the tingle can exist? That's a really good question. And I think, you know, I work in long form documentary programming and often we bring in a lot of lights, a camera, or even two cameras, and that environment can make people very self aware. And I think the key that you with a someone who has been through a traumatic experience, you've got to think very carefully of the environment that they are in, where they're going to offer up, you know, candid answers. You know, sometimes I choose the place where an incident happened, doing it responsibly. You can get amazing observational television. But sometimes it's more important to look out for their welfare and you find a nice safe space like their home turf, their house, an office where they frequent. Uh, you've got to really think carefully in television which environment will kind of elicit strong answers and make people feel comfortable to give these profound comments.
0: So then how do you balance being a responsible broadcaster in the way in which you describe it versus the pressures uh, of a, a newsroom environment that kind of require the story to be as kind of gripping and as compelling as possible?
1: That's a really good question because I know Al Jazeera, you know, it prides itself on being uh, a broadcaster that kind of shows the raw reality of life. I think what where it begins is like if you've got a particularly sensitive case study, none of the gear comes out. You have to sit with them, have a chat with them. Go, this is what we're going to talk about in the interview. I'm not going to tell you the precise questions, but we're going to be covering these subject areas and. You know the kinds of people that are going to be watching it uh, people from Africa, the Philippines. You have to make people conscious that they are speaking to a very global audience. Like cameramen laugh at me when I say in interviews, um, "Imagine that you're per- the person you're talking to is a Filipino migrant worker or a Ghanaian university student." They're my kind of cliche tools that I say um, before I even ask a line of questions. And I think the responsible thing is to make people conscious that. The world will be watching this piece of content, and sometimes for that, people it's an empowering experience because they go, you know, I've been ignored by the injustices and the the system for so long that this is like a chance for me, like it's cathartic to kind of go, what happened to me was really grim, and I want the world to know. Other other times, you know, people do raise areas of conversation where they're like, look, I'd rather not talk about that, and you, you know, you've got to sometimes you've got to go well. Um, it's in the public interest to hear aspects like this. Can we go into this terrain or that terrain? Um, It's very hard and it varies from story to story. But if you kind of make the interviewee aware of the power of what they're saying and the reason why you're asking that question, it's not just tabloid, it's not just, um, you know, you're you're being prying, there is public good that will hopefully come out of it. Usually people will go, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm happy to do that. But I don't do things... That are traumatizing unless I feel that there is public good and there is a lot of discussions that happen before and after we kind
0: of do an interview of that nature. Your portfolio, if we could call it that, uh, includes stories from all parts of all parts of the world, but. Um uh, you know, a few few hairy uh, places as well too, as perhaps depicted through media. Whether they are or not in reality is always another thing. How do you balance the personal safety uh, aspects of reporting when you're going into kind of difficult story terrain?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, security varies from place to place as well. Like sometimes it's more advantageous to work with say, members of a local gang, Um, like we did that in Mexico earlier this year when we were filming in this area where um, there was a lot of crime um, and a lot of violence. Um, You know, walking in with, like, a, a Western security guard with a gun is probably the worst thing you could do in that environment. So it's kind of choosing security personnel who you think are good at assessing risks would be candid with you and tell you now it's time to move. Um, You know, but in places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Papua New Guinea, we do have some form of security with us when doing a story because, I mean, obviously we are carrying a lot of camera gear. You are visible in those environments. And, um, you know, like the guy that we worked with in Mexico, he was very good at, like, telling us you cannot walk down that road because it's owned by a different gang or... um, we can only film here for an hour and he would be in a motorcycle outside our vehicle kind of assessing risks. So in these dangerous like environments, you do have to re- rely on who you consider be someone who is watching out for your security because like you have to be honest, you are not, it's not easy to fly under the radar in on, on some of those assignments. You are very visible
0: in, in those climates. I was going to ask you, apart from the cameras and all of yeah. the gear that you're taking, do you try and blend in as much as possible? Yeah, I mean, I also think how you
1: dress does. um, It's really important how you dress in certain environments as well, and um, you need to kind of show to the people that the community that you're filming in that you are trying your best to be in touch with the way. um, You know, like I would never walk with a, a suit into you know an Indian village. You know, far far from a big city, but like perhaps in an urban part of Pakistan, it would be better if I wore, like, a a suit without a tie. So, um, you know, how you dress will kind of... ..is a key ingredient to get a positive response for people. And I do think... um, also, your body language is another important aspect to the way you present yourself as a journalist in the Global South environment because often you're working with a local producer who is doing the talking for you. So if you look bored, if you look sad, if you um, – you know, I've, I've had incidents where I've had to tell um, colleagues of mine just because you can't understand what's going on don't use your phone, like, put it in your pocket because, you know, we're talking to, say, a survivor of a, a terrorist attack or a family who's lost a child in a, um, in a, in a natural disaster. Like, if you're, if you're standing there looking at your phone while your translator is talking to that person, the person can see the rest of the team that's there. And if you aren't present, even though you may not understand it, it does kind of change the body temp- body-like behaviour of the people that you're interviewing. Mm-hmm
0: yeah hundred um, percent have you found yourself in any particular uh hairy situations that um, that that you have had to make some quick moves
1: yeah I mean uh, well, I think probably the big one like if anyone knows my work, they know that I was kicked out of Malaysia and um, the authorities did launch a, a pretty serious criminal investigations against us for a documentary that we did about um, the plight of migrant workers during the pandemic I mean it led to this um, incredible angry response from the Malaysian government and, you know, they were um, proposing to file sedition um, charges against us which carried a jail term. So kind of getting out of that situation was um, probably one of the more hairiest situations. But, you know, in general, generally speaking, you know, in our work when we do go to... um, big news events like terror attacks and sometimes you do get pulled up by the police because they don't want you to be in a certain place and or they, like we've had incidents where they've tried to take our footage from us and because they haven't liked that we've filmed in a village which is under attack by, um, you know, a, 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 an ultra-nationalist group or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, you do g- g- face a, a range of threats but probably the, the whole Malaysia incident that happened at the start of the pandemic in 2020
0: was probably one of the most difficult situations to get out of. Not to mention, actually, kind of needing to report within that COVID environment and all of the uh, the, the challenges of movement, I guess, too, when you're when you're in an environment where uh, you know the world is shutting down around you, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, in that environment, um, I guess to set the scene a little bit more, um, what, what happened in Malaysia was. Um, the they had movement control orders like every other government imposed in Asian cities, but the defining difference was um, they were putting razor wire and barricades up around um, neighbourhoods where migrants were living and they were doing these kind of um, operations where they were raiding these kind of fortified neighbourhoods, um, arresting people, putting them onto trucks, and, um, no social distancing. They got COVID-19. We felt it was a story that um, showed acts that could be human rights abuses and it was definitely in the public interest when we were out there you know we were wearing um you know full ppe and this is tropical heat so that gets uncomfortable very quickly but even like i speak indonesian um and which can be used in malaysia um we didn't bring we kept our team to just the cameraman, myself, and a driver. um, And I did a lot of the interviews in Indonesian because we wanted to minimise the risk of getting infected among our team. Um, Normally, um, you would probably bring a Malaysian along with you um, to, you know, be involved in some of the translating and to, um, to make sure that it was safe. And we did in some instances where we felt, you know, we needed an extra pair of hands, we brought them along. But more often than not, um, I like I'm fluent in Indonesian, so I, I would do a lot of my interactions with um, migrants and other people that were being affected by these raid, raids
0: in the local language. Is that important to be able to have those language skills in those particular environments? Could you get away with it if you, you know, weren't able to, for instance, this, in this instance, speak Indonesian? I think... It's very important as a
1: foreign correspondent to speak one language. Like sometimes you will be sent to another part of the world where... You, you may have to start learning another language or you rely on your local producers. But there is a respect that does come when you have another language. Um, like the first place that I was posted to was Jakarta and the reason I was posted there was because I had um, proficiency in both production equipment and Indonesian language. Um, so I do think it is very important to speak that language and it does, when you do use it, it does build so much respect. Um, so I do think in the country where you are based, you should try wherever possible to you build know, build a core um, set of language skills. But if you are a roving correspondent where you're sent here, there and everywhere, it's a little bit harder to kind of pick up every language and it, it comes down to kind of working with local producers or fixers as they're often colloquially called. Although I really don't like using that term. Um, it's important to have like local collaborators who you can work with to bounce ideas on, make sure that, you know, what you're trying to say to interviewees is understood. Um, so, you know, it, there is a lot of, particularly with more inexperienced local producers there is a lot of I would say like coaching and talking to that person about how you want to that interview to go, and sometimes it's better in certain com, um, contexts to just let them do the interview and just be there to supervise. And um, they ask you a question or get a vital translation from time to time. Sometimes this kind of three-way mode of hearing an answer, getting it translated back, and hearing it can be quite kind of quite disruptive, particularly when it's a traumatic interview. So sometimes it's better to go. Look, this is what we. These are the areas of um, comment that we need to get out of this person. Um, Go for it. If you've got any questions, I'll be here in the chair. But like you,
0: you lead it and um, you drive it. Um, So that's important too. In terms of your sort of ideal story process, do you find that often the best stories come from when the way in which it's made is silky smooth, or is there something about the road bumps that come along the way when you're trying to develop and try to produce these stories that um, that offer sort of something kind of different and therefore perhaps better into the process
1: again it really depends on the country like i think one on one east we cover the whole asia pacific region like north asian countries like south korea and japan like organization is super important and like you know everything is so administrative and you you can't um, you can't change plans on at the last minute, you know, if they give you two hours, they very rarely extend the time, whereas India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, you're very much in a production environment where you fly by the seat of your pants and things change dramatically and often beautiful serendipitous moments happen um, that you capture and it's, it's great. Um, I kind of equate my job working in Asia as like, you have to bake a cake, but the kitchen is always different. And the personalities that are involved in it are always different, but you have to know the intricacies of the kitchen, um, to kind of make the best product. And you could look and you, even within a super regimented or formalized setting, like I've done a lot of documentaries in Japan. um, Offering up a serendipitous, uh, getting a serendipitous moment can ask by asking a question that they perhaps didn't expect and, um, that they answer in a really colorful, wonderful way. Like I remember, um, we did this story in Japan about love and we were following, um, these two herbivore men who effectively are virgins who are afraid of the opposites sex and stuff like that and um, you know they they were talking all uh, to me these two comedians they were herbivore men and we were following them around and getting their story and uh, following them on the dating scene etc cetera, etc cetera. but one of the best answers that I got from one of these herbivore men was I said look I get rejected by women all the time like it's just part of life like what 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 do you what do you fear about being rejected what is like so sad about this like I put a little bit, I made it a little bit about me and talked about, you know, like, you know, this face isn't like really fit for TV, but like I do it and I get my knockbacks because it really like dating in Japan is all about the fear of the knockback and the fear of rejection. It's like, what everyone goes through when they go on the dating scene. Um, and so that it led to them giving quite interesting insights um, about themselves. So you, even within very formal kind of regimented settings, if you kind of offer up a human moment or a question that they don't exactly expect – you can get some really cool stuff so both environments very different but you can get those human moments you've just got to kind of recognize when it is the right time to ask that question or you know film that thing that will
0: be you know a beautiful human moment in the documentary interesting that there's a you know there's a cultural element at play in this too and that yeah that different cultures you may or may not necessarily be able to uh kind of do that style of sort of on the you know sit of your pants type of <laughs> type of journalism and certainly uh working in the pacific where you know perhaps time is is more fluid than in other countries then then often there's a fair amount of waiting around uh, <laughs> and you know extending your analogy of the of the cake in the kitchen uh you've got your audiences you've got your gluten freeze and you've got your dairy freeze and you've got your vegans and you <laughs> So you can extend your Ghanaian university student even further with your, <laughs> your kitchen anecdote uh, metaphor, which is great. If you had a, uh, a, a magic wand and you could, um, and you could do whatever story that you would want to do, is there something that you are kind of burning to do? I would love to do more storytelling in South America
1: and Africa because I feel that there are a lot of uplifting stories that still haven't been told that kind of inform us about these parts of the world that we don't often um, hear about. So I think, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do some kind of cultural documentary or something a bit political in probably Africa or South America next. Well, I guess
0: we'll see that on the screen, Street. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Storymakers Institute. Appreciate your time. It's been wonderful. Thanks, Joel. The Storymakers Institute is created on Wadawurrung Country. Keep the show sustainable and strong by becoming a subscriber on Substack today with podcast episodes, written analysis and dispatches on storymaking straight to your inbox and Substack app feed. Visit thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com for all the details with annual, monthly, zero-cost and gift subscriptions available. And if you're a free subscriber, make a zero-cost contribution to the show by leaving us a star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and spread the word about the show. We'd be most grateful. Thanks to Dom Evans on post-production. I'm Joel Carnegie. I'll catch you next time.